sovereign in the way in which he works in men's hearts. His sovereignty never negates human responsibility. Both are plenty taught in the Bible, and so we declare both. This second thief perished in his sins because of his own wrong choices. Paul says of the perishing, let me read it for you. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have, be, have delighted in wickedness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. There's culpability here. That's why they perish. And they put it this way. God isn't responsible for your unbelief. You're not responsible for that. You are. God didn't keep the truth from you. You refused to love the truth. You refused to accept it if you're unsaved this morning. And not to believe God when he has spoken, well, that's your fault. That's your fault. God in the gospel comes to you. He comes to me. He tells us the truth about our condition before him. And once that occurs, we are on the ominous position of believing it and acting upon it, yes, or rejecting it and continuing on in our wicked course. If we choose the latter, the consequence of treating God as a liar, those consequences are self-inflicted. For in the declaration of the truth, God tells us the consequences of rejecting it. We perish because of our own, Paul says it this way, our own refusal to love the truth. Ooh. We perish because we believe the lie. We perish because our continuation in wickedness is preferred over the truth which will set us free from the power and the condemnation of sin. So firstly then we learn that God is completely sovereign in dispensing salvation. Secondly, we have in this word of salvation a lesson on victorious grace. Most of you all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 by heart. For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourself, that it's the gift of God. Lest any man should boast. Salvation is by grace from start to finish. It was planned by grace. It was executed by grace, including crucifixion. It was applied by grace through the Spirit's operation in our hearts. Grace comes to us. It overpowers our stubbornness our indifference and our weakness of faith. God's grace is irresistible and it's free. It draws sinners to Jesus like a magnet to metal. And it's free. It's free for the taking. Two of the most striking examples of God's grace operative in sinners is found in Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul after his conversion, and the other one right here, this dying thief. In Saul, there was what we might call an exemplary moral character operative. 
What do I mean? I mean Paul's own confession about his days before coming to know Christ was that he was, and he's not bragging here, he's just saying it like it is. His, his confession is that he was faultless in regard to the letter of the law righteousness, Philippians 3 verse 6. Which means that outwardly, I mean, no one could justly accuse him of breaking the Ten Commandments. He obeyed the rules, at least outwardly. But God, who could read his heart, knew that he was a covetous man in his heart, an idolater, Romans 7, verse 7. What is more, uh, Saul was zealous for God. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as they say in parlance, a teacher of the religious leaders. We would say he was a seminary professor who taught seminarians the truth of the gospel. In other words, he was punctilious as a teacher. Also in his habits, morally upright in his behavior. A model citizen. Think of Saul of Tarsus. An exemplary contributor to the good of society. It's the kind of guy you would want living in your neighborhood. But all of this notwithstanding, Saul was lost in sin. He was lost in the sin of pride. He was lost in the sin of covetousness. The sin of misguided zeal as he expended his energies to persecute what? The church of Christ of all things. And all of this, the product of his, can I say it this way, his self-righteousness. God's grace had to transform him. God's grace had to change him. And it did. After his conversion, his life was constrained by love for Christ. And his appreciation for the grace of God had showered upon him that wonderful blessing when he sinned in ignorance by persecuting God's church. Now that's Saul of Tarsus who became the great apostle Paul. But he still needed to be forgiven, didn't he? Still needed to be given the grace of God. Now with the thief on the cross, cross, hardly any of this applies (laughs) Think about it. This thief had no moral life before his encounter with Christ. He lived constantly on the edge of the law, getting away with as much as he could. He had no respect for the laws of men, nor the laws of God. He was a convicted felon, a blight on society, a lawbreaker, one who looks for him from uh, for his fellow men and gives nothing in return. He's just a taker, a taker, a taker. And after he experienced the salvation of Jesus, he died with no opportunity to serve his newfound Lord in deeds of righteousness. The crucifixion ended all of that for him. Now, does this not rip away 
two of the lies upon which many operate concerning God's salvation. The lie that we must first make ourselves fit for God and through a program of self-reformation before God will receive us as his children. That's one lie. And second lie, that after God has received us, we're placed on a kind of probation, which Rome teaches, to see if we will produce enough good works for God to sustain our position lest we fall from grace and in the end, woe is us, be lost. Two lies, two lies have nothing to do with the gospel. I mean, think about this. This dying thief had no good works to commend him before God's grace came to him and no good works to sustain himself afterwards. He is what he is. He died with what he was. He was solely shut up to the mercy and the grace of God. And I say it emphatically today, so are you. And so am I. There is no self-reformation that you can do to make yourself fit for God. God must fit you to live with Him in peace. And there's no probation after salvation. God will keep you faithful to Him as only He can do. So, whether you're a righteous, religiously self-righteous person like Saul of Tarsus, or a person destitute of personal integrity and morality like this thief, you need, I need, the victorious grace of God in your life. In your life. Up morally, up, upright morally as a good citizen, or down and out degenerate like the most wicked sinner on the street, we still need the grace of God. We need his mercy. And you know that's really good because God loves to be merciful to helpless sinners. So to be in need of mercy puts you in the right, the right position before God. Thirdly, we have in this conversion which came to the thief a salvation resulting from no human instrumentality. We have been taught by God's word, and rightly so, that we are to pray for the loss of the world, that we are to bear witness to skeptics of the good news of the gospel of Christ, that we are to encourage sinners to come under the hearing of God's word through gospel servants, believing as we do what the Bible affirms, which is this, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. That's what we're taught. That's what we believe. But having said that, and truly believing that these are some of the means that God uses to bring sinners to repentance and faith, it is also true that God is not bound by these things. God often does bless our prayers and our witness. Yes, he condemn, con, condescends rather to, to use us 
in his church to bring others into a saving knowledge of his son Jesus. But his grace is all-powerful and not confined to human instrumentality. He may work in some of the most unfavorable circumstances. Case in point, this thief. Consider here that this thief's conversion to Christ occurred at a time when, from all outward appearance, Christ had no power to save himself, (laughs) let alone anyone else. And by the way, it was said to him in derision. This thief had accompanied Jesus on the road to Golgotha. He had seen Jesus fall under the weight of his own cross. This was most likely this thief's first encounter with Jesus, although he probably knew of him by reputation. But now as he saw Jesus, he witnessed him He witnessed him in the hour of his weakness, in the hour of disgrace. Humanly speaking, he saw him with his enemies winning over him. Most of his friends had deserted him. Public opinion had turned against him. The religious elite mocked him, verse 35. He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And verse 36 says the soldiers also mocked. A lot of scorning and mocking going on. Well, this thief is hearing all this. He's seeing all this. Yet amidst all of this, the robber of our story somehow, somehow saw in Jesus the Lord of glory and that in him was to be found his Savior. Think about that. And this all transpired before any miracles of that day had occurred, you know, before the hours of darkness that came, before the earthquake, before the centurion's confession, truly this was the Son of God. None of that has happened yet. This man came to his understanding of Jesus before any of these convincing proofs. We could say it this way. God decided to save this thief under the most unfavorable conditions possible and to teach us all that salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah says in his book. And it is to teach us not to magnify human instrumentality above the supernatural operations of God's Holy Spirit. God can't do that. Well, yes, he can, and he did. So whatever human means you hang your hope upon for the salvation of your friends or your loved ones, the prayers of God's people, and I'm all for praying for our unsaved, the witness of the gospel, the care of a pastor's visit, the power of a gospel sermon, none of this by itself can save anyone. We are beholden to the intervention of God and he saves whom he wills. And when men are saved, it is of pure and free grace alone. 
not because we did good in the employment of human means. Which I'm all for. But what I am saying is God is not locked into these things. You read some of the accounts of how people were saved. And you'll scratch your head. You read some of Spurgeon's sermons. And then you'll read the confession of people that were saved on that. And they'll make, a, they'll make some, some statement that God convicted them of such and such and such and such. And I've read some of those sermons and I'm, I'm reading and I'm flipping and I'm reading and I'm flipping and I'm saying, where did they get that? I don't see that. Well, Spurgeon is a great preacher of the gospel, that's to be sure. But where did he get that idea? Where did this sinner get that idea from this sermon? He got it from the Holy Spirit where he got it and some rare off the cuff remark that we wouldn't think is much a part of the gospel at all that Spurgeon might have said the Holy Spirit of God took that like the dart that it is and it's, he stabbed the person in the heart and convicted them of their sin and brought life to a dead soul that's the power of the gospel it's the power of our God now consider with me the actual words of Christ. This thief, along with his companion in crime, began his encounter with Jesus in the same vile way, that is, he insulted Jesus with wicked accusations along with the other thief. If you want to read about that, go to Matthew 27, verse 44 and following. But then, then, almost out of the blue, this robber took an abrupt turnabout he ceased his insults. Instead, he rebuked his companion, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 40, verse 41. And then, then directing his thoughts toward Jesus, he said, Jesus, <sighs> Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. I want you to note firstly that this thief is a model example of everyone who is ever saved. Some have listened to this thief's final turnabout and they have concluded that he was somehow more noble than the other thief who died in his sins. But that's to miss the point by a mile. The facts are clear that both these men were of the same nature. They were thieves. Both were convicted of crimes that they had done. They both blasphemed and mocked Jesus while they were dying. There's nothing noble about this. Think of it. I mean, a man is in a state of dying, and yet while dying, admittedly for criminal lifestyle, he uses his dying breath to curse and insult the innocent Son of God. 
This demonstrates the depravity of the sinning heart. It's a picture of your heart. It's a picture of my heart, apart from God's intervention. The Bible is true when it says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Nor can it do so. Romans 8 verse 7. That's your mind. That's my mind. Or again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or again, we were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. No noble character in us. No difference. Or again, without hope and without God in the world, says Paul, despite our assertions to the contrary. Hopeless. Godless. That was us. Now, if you don't see yourself in this bad condition before God, I know you will never come to the point in your life where you say, Jesus, remember me. Me. I was just singing a little chorus when I was a kid. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my mother, not my sister. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We have to see ourselves as the sinners we are and come to God not demanding our rights but pleading for his mercy. You say, well, I'm no thief. I may be other things, but I'm no thief. Oh, yes, you are. And so is all of sinful humanity. You see, God created you for his glory. He created you to serve him in obedience. And to do that, he equipped you. He endowed you with abilities, a brain, sound body, skill in speech, in know-how, in resources that you have. But you misappropriated those things. You have used them to serve another master, even Satan. You've used them to satisfy your own cravings. You've robbed God and spent his resources on your own sinful pleasures. That's a thief. That's the thief on the cross. And it's a picture of you and me. We deserve the judgment our deeds have earned. Secondly, I want you to note that this thief had to come to the end of himself before God saved him. To see ourselves as lost sinners, that's not enough. To learn that we are depraved and corrupt and that no good dwells in us, that's not enough. We must also admit that we are, and here's the word, we are helpless. That we are undone because we are unable to do anything to help ourselves improve our status before God. And here is where so many people fail. But if men are inept to acknowledge that they are lost, they are even more reluctant to recognize that they're unable to work any improvement in themselves to make themselves acceptable to God. Oh, I can do this. I... Didn't people come to Jesus and say, tell us what to do that we might be saved? They did. They came to him that. You can read about it in John 6. 
But the Bible says that sinners are powerless, Romans 5, verse 6. That they do not even understand the things of God, let alone accept them, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. God testifies that there is no one who does good, not even one. Let's look for one. We can't find one. Romans 3, verse 12. And this is why Paul concludes that God saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Titus 3, verse 5. Let me ask, what, what, what good works did this thief have opportunity to do? He could not walk in the paths of righteousness. He couldn't turn over a new leaf. He couldn't do penance for his past, as Rome teaches. What he could do was what he was doing. He was dying. He was dying. That's what he could do. And this is what you and I must do. We must be nailed to the cross and convinced in mind and heart that we are immobilized by our sin. We're cut off from God life. We're spiritually bankrupt. We are helpless. Only then will Jesus mean anything to us. You say, well, that means that I'm pretty desperate. Yes, that's right. Without God's intervention, you're pretty desperate. So am I. We've got to die to self. It cannot be, well, Lord, I think salvation is kind of a partnership. You, you do your part. Tell me what I, I need to do, and I'll do my part, and together we'll get me saved. No, together you'll get yourself lost. There is no me, myself, and I in salvation other than you being the recipient of grace and mercy which is dispensed by God himself and not on the basis of partnership. Thirdly, I want you to observe that true repentance and faith, what, what is that all about? Well, firstly, repentance is the realization of our lost state, the discovery of our moral ruin, the judging ourselves as sinners justly bound for hell and the willingness to renounce such things as being wicked and against God. This thief said to his companion, Don't you fear God? That's what he said to his companion. Don't you fear God? He did not say, Don't you fear punishment? He saw God as judge. And then he condemned himself saying, We are punished justly. Verse 41, we are getting what our deeds deserve. What's he doing? This thief is passing sentence on himself. That's what he's doing. He's siding with God about his sinful life. He's not justifying himself. He is not comparing himself. Well, I'm not a murderer like that Barabbas guy that Pilate let loose. I'm only a thief. 
No, he makes no excuses for his conduct. This is repentance, nothing else. Have you ever seen yourself in this way? Do you realize that you have not earned eternal life by your behavior, but rather death and punishment from God? That's what you get for being a sinner? So repentance. We turn from our sin. Then too, this thief's repentance towards God was accompanied by faith in Jesus. Repentance and faith. Where would you hear that before? That's the gospel message. This isn't a different gospel that this thief is getting from Jesus. It's the same one I preach. It's the same one preachers have been preaching for over 2,000 years. Repentance must be accompanied by faith in Jesus. An intellectual faith and a heart faith. It's true that men will never be saved from their sin unless they believe in their heart that Christ is Savior. But it's equally true that they must have an intellectual faith as well. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, sometimes we talk about people who only have a mental ascent about Jesus. That is, they believe Things like, uh, well, that he existed, that history records his life, that he was a good man, yes. A godly man, yes. Even a prophet, oh yes. They even believe in his miracles. I don't think this is something we should put down. The Bible makes it clear that people cannot believe on him of whom they have not heard. Romans 10 verse 14. Now it's true, head faith alone saves no one, but it is also a prerequisite to heart faith. You've got to know some things about Jesus. Head faith is what I know about Jesus, what I've learned from his word. Heart faith is what I do with what I know. I trust in the one I know. I commit myself to the one I know. And that's why it's so important to be in a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. And if you get wrong teaching about Jesus and salvation, the head will not have the truth that it needs to make a godly decision. You'll be trained to trust in wrong things. What did this thief know? I mean, just think about it. What did he know? Well, he knew what Pilate had inscribed on a placard over Jesus' head, which read, This is the King of the Jews. He knew that. What did this thief believe? Well, that Jesus was a king who was going to his kingdom, verse 42. Hmm. What did he do with what he knew? He asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Wow, this guy's getting some 
great spiritual truths from little scraps here and a little scrap there. It's intellectual faith. He saw some things about Christ, which I dare say the crowd at the foot of the cross didn't see. All they saw was somebody dying that needed to be mocked and ridiculed, which they gladly entered into. And then, too, this faith was a confiding faith. Confiding faith. If your faith in Jesus stops with head faith, then it's no better than a faith that believes, let's say, in the historicity of Alexander the Great. Saving faith is more than a correct opinion or a trained mind. Saving faith launches out on Christ. It transcends reason in that sense. Was it reasonable that Jesus should take notice of this thief, a man who but moments before was cursing him, insulting him, a convicted robber justly condemned? Yet this faith came from his heart. He didn't have any use of his hands and feet, which I mentioned earlier, but he had his heart, he had his tongue. What does the scripture say about heart and tongue? Let me read it for you. It it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth or tongue that you confess. That's how you're saved. Romans 10, verse 10. Oh, this thief is right on target with what the gospel says. Then, too, his was also a humble faith. Think about this. His his request was not, Lord, honor me. Lord, exalt me. Not even, Lord, save me. Very likely that he did not see himself as, can I say it this way, as savable. I don't think he thought himself as savable. So he simply asked to be remembered. How appropriate. He was an outcast of society. As soon as he was dead and buried, would he be remembered anymore? Who would remember him? I mean, even his family would be glad to get rid of him because of disgracing the family. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, God would remember him. This is the faith of heart. It's the faith of heart. The faith that's willing to launch out on the mercy of God and and see if his mercy will be there to sustain it. I don't know. 
Would God remember the likes of me? Are you willing to do that today? What is it that you're waiting for? I mean, is your life so wonderful that you will miss it that much if you launch out on Christ for a new life? The promise of Jesus to all who turn from their sin and repentance and trust in him and his substitutionary death for forgiveness is this. I tell you the truth. You will be with me today in paradise. That's his promise. And no one dare question God's decision for he declares to all, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on a man's desire or his effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9 verse 14. What is he saying? He's saying, it's not up to you to tell me who I can save or how to save them. I will have mercy on who I want to have mercy. You can't tell me that I can't have compassion on this crook, this robber, this thief who's been justly condemned by the courts. If I want to have mercy on him, if I want to have compassion on him, that's up to me, the judge, the eternal judge, not you. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I may tell you that this is a great place for sinners to be. It's a great place to be in need of mercy. And I, why do I say that? I mean, the prophet Isaiah tells us, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will have mercy on him. To our God, for he will freely pardon. Amen. Our world doesn't know God like that. But I want you to know that's who God is. So while you're going, oh, woe is me. Uh, I don't know about this uh, admitting that I'm such a sinner, that I'm helpless and can't help myself, casting myself upon the mercy of God. I don't know about that. You don't have to know about that. All you have to do is do it because he'll have mercy on you. And he will freely pardon. I don't know if he'll pardon me. Pastor, you don't know my life. You don't know how I've lived. You don't know anything about my past. No, but he does. And you'll not pull the wool over his eyes. And yet sin and all, he will pardon. He'll freely pardon. Come to Christ. He's the only Savior there is. But then I have to say, what a wonderful Savior. <laughs> There's none like him. None that will freely pardon like this. No judge is going to turn away from a criminal that's been rightly condemned. But this judge will freely pardon by taking your sins upon himself and paying justice for your iniquity. That's salvation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the merit of Christ. We don't have to clean up our own lives. We don't have to do penance as some churches teach. We don't have to 
change this or change that. We have to trust Christ who's done it all. And we won't even do that unless your Holy Spirit grants us faith and repentance. These are the gifts of God. Do your work in our hearts, not just for our good, but for your glory. For you are glorified every time a sinner turns from his evil ways and comes to know the salvation of God. That's why Jesus came. The scripture says, even the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner, just one, that repents of his sin and comes to know Christ. Wow. That's how stupendous it is. What an event. That God would take a black hell-bound sinner who has no merit, who has no excuse, who has no way to help himself, they would take that person out of the slime pit, place him on a pedestal, clean him off, forgive him in the blood of Christ, and make him a child of God. Wow. Do that for anyone here today, Lord, that's lost in their sin. And may we who know you see this as a day of rejoicing. Amen. From Trinity Hymnal number 470 as we close. 470 in the red hymnal. Let's stand together as we sing.
said, Amen. Amen. Christ has done it all. Wow, even, even before the creation of the world, he set his affection upon us. You're not an afterthought with God if you're a child of God. You're saved on purpose. Amen. On purpose. The purpose was that you might become a child of God and bring glory to his name, grant holiness into your life, make you a witness to others that are still searching, still looking, but they seem to be lost in the fog. The darkness is all around them and they can't, they can't find the light. But you have the light and you can give it forth. Please be about doing that. Tonight from John's Gospel, we will be looking... At Jesus' ecclesiastical trial. Say, what's an ecclesiastical trial? Well, it means the bigwigs of religion put him on trial and had the audacity to question his spirituality. See you tonight, 6 o'clock. Amen. Amen.